SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. Bertrand Tungandami ngaya. I am Bertrand Tungandami. Coming up in your program this Monday, November 27, we have a selection of the latest Indigenous news stories from NITV. And leading up to the holidays and a busy tourist season, I caught up with Rob Hyatt, Manager Cultural Experiences at the Core Heritage Trust, to explore one of the most popular Indigenous cultural tours in um, Melbourne. Also on NITV Radio today, as world leaders head to the United Nations Climate Change Conference this week, climate targets will be put under the microscope, with some scientists saying greater attention should be placed on the role of animals in controlling the carbon cycle. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Bulletin, the Federal and Northern Territory governments discuss major staffing shortage for Indigenous legal services in Alice Springs. Mike Pesulo sacked as Home Affairs Secretary following a texting scandal. And a third batch of Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners released as mediators push for an extension of a four-day ceasefire. The Federal and Northern Territory governments are holding talks of a major staffing shortage for Indigenous legal services in Alice Springs, which they fear could lead to clients being wrongfully imprisoned. More than three-quarters of the lawyers working at the Northern North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency in Alice Springs have resigned with just five lawyers currently able to deal with a growing caseload. The Northern Territory government has announced plans to send an extra 50 police officers to Alice Springs over the traditionally high crime summer period in the town. They're promising a a zero-tolerance approach to offending. Naja Acting Principal Lawyer Jared Sharp says this would likely mean both higher rates of imprisonment and longer sentences in Central Australia who might speak English as a fourth language or other reasons why you know, their, their understanding of the legal process is extremely limited. They're going to be in situations where they're very vulnerable to being sentenced to incarceration when they might not otherwise would have been or for longer than they would otherwise have been. Victoria's landmark truth-telling commission is calling on Victorians to engage in the final round of submissions, despite sentiment shifting for the establishment of a national truth-telling body. It comes as a news poll shows nationwide support for treaty-making and truth 
truth-telling has plummeted in the wake of the failed referendum. Telstra has again been accused of mis-selling its products and services to First Nations customers with dozens of new cases, case, cases revealed. It comes two years after the company was fined $50 million for widespread mistreatment of Indigenous customers across the Northern Territory, Western Australia and South Australia. Indigenous, Indigenous Consumer Network Financial Councillor Zach Wilde says the situation is adding considerable financial stress to families. In the worst examples, we're seeing really high levels of financial distress to the point where people are quite literally taking food out of the mouths of their children so that they can pay these bills. Mike Pesulo has been sacked as Home Affairs Secretary after a code of conduct breach finding. He was stood down following a text message scandal with leaked messages revealing the Secretary repeatedly lobbied for his department and pushed his personal views in breach of public service standards over a five-year period. A statement issued by Prime Minister Antonio Albanese's office said this action was based on a recommendation made following an independent inquiry. Mr. Pizzullo is said to have fully cooperated with the inquiry led by Linnell Briggs, which found Mr. Pizzullo breached the Australian Public Service Code of Conduct. Stephanie Foster will act as Secretary of the Department until a permanent appointment can be made. Green's leader Adam Band has pushed back against claims his party has a blind spot when it comes to anti-Semitism. It comes after former ambassador to Israel, Liberal MP Dev Sharma, accused the Greens of demonizing the state of Israel during its conflict with Hamas. Mr. Sharma pointed to Green Senator Mehrin Farouki, who shared a photo on social media, standing next to student protesters who were holding a poster depicting the Israeli state being thrown into a rubbish bin. Mr. Bant says Ms. Farouki shared the post without having seen the poster and has now removed it and issued an apology. Mr. Bunt told the ABC the Greens maintained their long-standing opposition to anti-Semitism while also calling for permanent ceasefire in the conflict between Israel and Hamas. We oppose anti-Semitism. We've been concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism in Australia for some time. It's been um, going for a number of years now. We've thrown our weight behind uh, anti-Semitism pushes to tackle anti-Semitism as well as Islamophobia in this country. And I think taking a position to steadfastly call for peace and security for both Israelis and Palestinians on an equal footing and calling for an end to the invasion. The federal government is investing a further $225 million for security agencies, the Australian Federal Police and Australian Border Force, to monitor the release of immigration detainees previously held in indefinite detention. A further 45 people have been released from indefinite detention following a high court decision ruling indefinite detention and unlawful, bringing the total number of people released to 138. The November decision requires those released to be subject to mandatory curfews and wear electronic monitoring devices indefinitely. New laws are also being introduced that will criminalize any breach of these conditions, including approaching schools or daycare centers. It comes as Australian Border Force has alleged four people breached their visa conditions. Human rights lawyers have condemned the strict conditions.
Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says the, dis- the dispersal of funding ensures Australian border force and police staff are adequately equipped to respond if there are, an- if there are any breaches of these uh, visa conditions. So just so you've got clarity about the resourcing, this is a $255 million two-year package of which $150 million will go to Australian Border Force. $88 million will go to the Australian Federal Police. Uh, the, the model that we're using here is ABF essentially does the monitoring. The moment there is a, bre- a breach of the conditions, the uh, case is handed to the a- AFP for investigation and prosecution. Liberal spokesman for immigration and citizenship Dantean says there's still uncertainty around how many of the former detainees are being monitored. So 255 million doesn't clear up that uncertainty. What we need to hear from the government is how many of those 140 are being monitored, how many of them are wearing ankle bracelets. The community deserves to know these are hardened criminals, these include child sex offenders, and we are getting no information from the government. 17 Israeli hostages have been released in exchange for 39 Palestinian prisoners on the third day of a four-day truce between Israel and Hamas. Mediators led by Qatar are pushing for an extension of the ceasefire. A four-year-old American-Israeli girl, Abigail Eden, is among the Israeli hostages and was orphaned when her parents were killed by Hamas on October the 7th. Her auntie, Elamor, says she is in the hospital and is being taken care of. I want to thank everybody for all your love and support. It's amazing and thank you so much. I just want to say she has family and we're taking care of her. So don't worry about it. And it's very important to let her be now with the family. And uh, no uh, press and photographs and uh, paparazzi. It's very important for her uh, safety and health right now. Back home, more than 100 climate protesters are set to face court, including a 97-year-old minister of religion and five children, following a weekend blockade at the port of Newcastle. Groups took turns paddling into the shipping lane, which services the world's largest coal port on Saturday morning in an action planned to last 30 hours. But as 4 p.m. passed on Sunday, marking the end of police permission for the protest, scores remained in the water expecting arrest. But New South Wales Premier Chris Minns told 2GB he doesn't support the protest. And now having a look at the weather around the country. Broome, partly cloudy, 33. Perth, partly cloudy, 30. Adelaide, possible shower, 25. Melbourne, a shower or two, 18. Hobart, cloudy, 16. Albury, Wodonga, mostly sunny, 26. Canberra, shower or two, 27. Wollongong, possible shower, 24. Sydney, mostly sunny, 26. Newcastle, mostly sunny, 27. Brisbane, partly cloudy, 31. Townsville, mostly cloudy, 30. Keynes, possible shower, 31. Alice Springs, sunny, 34. And the Trestrait Islands, a sunny day ahead and a top of 31 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. TV radio Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 p.m. or anytime online. 
You're listening to NITV Radio and I'm Bertrand Tungendami. And today we're broadcasting from NAM on the Kulin Nation. Still to come in your program, well, leading up to the summer holidays and busy tourist season, I caught up with Rob Hyatt, Manager, Cultural Experiences at the Kuri Heritage Trust, to explore one of the most popular indigenous cultural tours in NAM, Melbourne. Also, as world leaders head to the United Nations Climate Change Conference this week, climate targets will be put under the microscope, with some scientists saying greater attention should be placed on the role of animals in controlling the carbon cycle. But first, a selection of indigenous current affairs stories from NITV. A staffing crisis has consumed Indigenous legal services in early springs and it's now taken the extraordinary step of suspending its services for new criminal matters until the end of the year. With the jail in early springs past capacity and an increase in policing over the traditionally high crime summer period, legal representatives are warning many could end up having to represent themselves in court and may face a wrongful imprisonment. Anne Henderson reports. Alice Springs, this year in the national headlines as a crime hotspot. Explosion of violence and Indigenous youth crime proving divisive. The shocking figures that paint a dire picture of a once thriving town. But as more charges are laid, the number of lawyers representing Indigenous clients has dropped to a crisis low. I think the potential outcomes in Alice Springs are catastrophic. The North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, known as NAJA, represents Indigenous clients, but its staff of 17 in Alice Springs has slumped to just five. Three of those have just resigned as well. Northern Territory Legal Aid has been trying to help fill the breach, but this is the fear about what happens next. They're going to be in situations where they're very vulnerable to being sentenced to incarceration when they might not otherwise would have been or for longer than they would otherwise have been. The biggest concern is for Indigenous defendants with mental illness, disability or a limited understanding of the legal system. And for some, English might not be their first, second or even third language. The Northern Territory Criminal Lawyers Association saying it's deeply troubled that some of the most vulnerable Territorians will now be forced to navigate a complex and in many ways foreign system without the benefit of legal representation to ensure their rights are preserved and that the system deals with their cases in a fair and dignified manner, going on to describe the issue as a ticking time bomb, saying the real issue here is successive governments' chronic underfunding of the legal aid sector, which is stretched to breaking point. Naja has been dealing with management ructions and a string of high-profile resignations, as well as the sacking of the CEO. Lawyers speaking to SBS say that, coupled with burnout, has helped trigger the exodus. The legal agency is federally funded, the money administered by the Northern Territory. A spokesman for the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, acknowledging governance concerns and other issues are being treated seriously, promising to work with the NT to minimise the impact on frontline legal services. At the same time, the Territory Government has announced plans to send an extra 50 police officers to Alice Springs over the summer, promising a zero-tolerance approach to offending. There are, you know, grave concerns for unrepresented people and making sure their, their needs are met at this time. 
um, and we hope to be able to get our criminal law practice back on its feet as quickly as we can. That report by NITV's Hannah Anderson. Now, for the first time, the conservation of Australia's national parks will be overseen by a First Nations person. It comes at a time when the relationship between Parks Australia and some traditional owners has become frayed. Ricky Kirby has the details. Ricky Archer has been named as the new director of National Parks. The Jungan man has a long history in conservation and land and sea management. He was most recently chief executive of the North Australian Indigenous Land and Sea Management Alliance and has previously worked as a ranger and in conservation and leadership. He will take on responsibility for some of the country's key parks, including Kakadu and Uluru Katajuda. He comes on board at a time of strained relations between Parks Australia and the traditional owners of Kakadu National Park. They're currently suing Parks Australia over construction work carried out near a sacred site at Gunlam Falls, one of Kakadu's key attractions. They claim the work was carried out without the appropriate consultation with traditional owners and closed Gunlam Falls to the public as a result of the dispute. Other sections of the park are reportedly in a state of disrepair and there's been an explosion of feral animals in the park which has caused damage to the natural environment. Ricky Kirby, NITV News. Now getting more First Nations people working in health and medical fields has long been seen as one way of encouraging more of our mob to better utilise mainstream medical services. In western New South Wales, one local health district is making big inroads into the issue with the graduation of its first all-Indigenous cohort of health trainees. Sophie Bennett has the details. A graduation ceremony in Dubbo in central western New South Wales for 12 health trainees, all of them Aboriginal. They've just completed a two-year school-based paid traineeship that includes 100 days of on-the-job training. We've got some that are going off to university to actually study in their profession now to get their degrees, whether it's in allied health. Um, We've got some that are going off to do nursing. We've got some that are going off to actually have enrolled into medicine. Young Wiradjuri man Liam Miller says the course has been life-changing. This traineeship's offered so many opportunities to me. It's opened my eyes to a heap of things, Um, you know, different professions and stuff like that and different people to meet. Liam is one of those who's chosen to continue his study at university. It was a big thing um, that I could put on my application to say, I already work in health, I am a qualified AIN or about to be a qualified AIN. Um, so it really fast-tracked my application into university to do my nursing degree. 18-year-old Summer Williams from Cowra decided to take a different path. I'm not really a nursing type, I don't like the blood and spew and things like that, so, and I'm pretty savvy on computers and technology and things, and so I decided to do business services. The grads admit it was a challenging two years, but rewarding. The struggle of juggling school load, workload and traineeship load was a lot, but it just showed me how strong I was to be able to come out the other side. We are building that relationship with our community. We're also empowering them to make their own self-determination about what it means for them as, well, for us as one people. Sophie Bennett, NITV News. And that's our last of our selection of stories from NITV. We must now step aside for a short break when we come back. Conversation with Rob Hyatt about Aboriginal cultural experiences in NAM. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. 
but first of all can you share with us uh, your story your journey leading indigenous cultural experiences at the Kuri Heritage Trust and uh, becoming one of the most popular people at uh, Federation Square I'm not sure about my own popularity at Fed Square it certainly um, probably has to be based on the popularity of the Koori Heritage Trust and our work as a cultural centre really but um, yeah so my mob is Wachabolic in West Victoria and Gyano Kurnai from down Gippsland here in Victoria a lot of my family are associated with the Late Tyres mission. When talking about your popularity at Federation Square I'm not only referring to people seeing you when you're running your cultural uh, tours but it's also uh, about this big portrait of yourself uh, that's in a walkway to Federation Square welcoming guests uh, in language Wominjaka. Can you tell us a word or two about uh, this portrait and uh, the message that it conveys? Is that the picture of me? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, it's kind of embarrassing actually. I guess so many people said, oh, we saw you at Federation Square. And I wasn't even there, but it just happens to be that picture there. Um, some of our work that we've been doing, especially with Federation Square, has been having a presence. So the Koori Heritage Trust as a culture centre is an important presence, I think, within Federation Square, especially from a First Peoples point of view. And to actually have people start to understand that you're engaging in that culture and the opportunities there at Federation Square. So that part of that presence now is... Actually having, I mean, for want of a better term, it's it's signage, but that signage is also having some educational component to it as well. They're talking a little bit about, you know, the, the landscape, the traditional owners and the land that you're on. So, you know, it goes a little bit beyond just signage. I just find it a little bit embarrassing that my face is on it, but... <laughs> No, that's okay. It's important because uh, when visitors uh, take that walkway leading up to Fed Square, they see that uh, big uh, portrait of you with uh, the words uh, Womenjika or welcome in very big fonts and uh, the rest of the messaging in smaller fonts. It's important because it starts conversations as uh, visitors uh, head to Fed Square. Yeah, and I and I think that's important, and that's why that's why I say it goes a little bit beyond just it's not an advertising sign, but it actually is an educational sign. So it talks to our presence from that point of view, but it gives um, visitors an opportunity to start to understand that they're engaging in something when they're visiting Federation Square, or they're engaging in culture when they're visiting Federation Square, and then obviously visiting the Koori Heritage Trust as well. Your cultural experiences are very popular with tourists and uh, visitors uh, to Fed Square in Melbourne. What can one learn about uh, First Nations culture from your cultural experiences? The learning side of it is actually really important to us. The Koori Heritage Trust has been running tours for well over 20 years at its various locations, including of when we've landed at Fed Square now for around eight years, predominantly the tours had been educational based and we had a lot of school groups, corporate groups that would do our tours to actually learn about, you know, Aboriginal Victoria, to learn about Aboriginal Melbourne in particular, which was really important. It was an opportunity to engage with our artifacts and artworks to learn about our unique cultures and unique styles here in Victoria. Um, today, the tours continue to do that educational component with school groups and corporate we learn about Melbourne, we learn about the history of Melbourne, we acknowledge 
the country and acknowledge the Wurundjeri Warrun peoples as the traditional owners of the the land. But when we talk through our work, we actually talk through the history of Melbourne itself as well, not just what the traditional landscape might have been, but a little bit about that impact of colonisation, how that impacted on the landscape, how it impacted on Aboriginal people. But we talk about the fact that our culture is still alive and culture is still present here in Melbourne today, um, that you can find Aboriginal culture in Melbourne and in our urban spaces. And whether that be some traditional forms within the landscape still, or even, you know, in the naming of a walkway such as Biramma, or the naming of a bridge such as William Barrack Bridge and Tandara Bridge within our sport entertainment precinct, our culture can be found in a range of different ways now. And that's also inclusive of public artworks, urban design, and what is being built into that urban landscape as well. And so it's an opportunity for people to learn that you can engage and learn and take part in Aboriginal culture, even in our urban spaces, and that it's alive and vibrant in that sense. I think it's really important because it's dispelling some of the myths of Aboriginal Australia to a certain extent as well. But the tours themselves have gone well beyond there now, especially within the tourism side of things. And so the Koori Heritage Trust is doing a lot of work with Visit Victoria and Tourism Australia. Um, we're a Discover Aboriginal Experience as a signature experience for Tourism Australia now. And so we're getting a lot of international guests. Um, you know, it's been really driven, especially since we've come out of COVID now. We're seeing a lot of international guests coming back. And it's been a good timing for us to be supporting us to become, you know, quite a, a an attraction within Melbourne itself as well. Yeah, talking about the Birarangma or the Yarra River, having done myself uh, one of the tours, uh, I learned a lot uh, about the history of this river and how it's been uh, profoundly transformed by colonisation. It's a very popular river with Melbournians and tourists, yet most wouldn't know anything about uh, its history and how First Nations people lived and connected with this river uh, prior to colonization. Can you remind us of uh, the history of the Birarangma and uh, how colonization has uh, deeply transformed uh, its course and uh, the landscape around it? You look at the modern landscape today and you look at the course of the river and how it looks today, it is really hard to imagine what that landscape was traditionally. And a lot of Melbourne was wetlands and it was bogs and lagoons and marshes and it was a very different landscape. The river itself was a flooding river. It's hard to imagine that it used to have waterfalls and those waterfalls are actually, you know, one of our major streets now cross where those waterfalls used to be. And so there was a modification of the river, the stopping from flooding. So they widened the river. In some areas, it's almost three times as wide as it used to be. They changed part of the course of the river and they took out the waterfalls to actually stop it from flooding. So it enabled, you know, well, I guess it enabled colonisation from that point of view in terms of changing the landscape to be more of a European landscape that then supported, you know, sheep and cattle and farming and um, you know, that in itself was quite an impact, especially not just on the natural landscape, but the, you know, the flora and fauna of the area as well. And so we try and get our guests and our visitors to imagine what that landscape might have been, to imagine certain parts of Melbourne, you know, from a, a land point of view, not even really existing as being actually underwater. And it's, um, I think it's really important that people can learn that 
colonization had an impact. We know it had an impact on our people in the ways that it did, but the impact on the landscape was quite profound as well. Being able to talk about Birrarung as the traditional name of the river rather than Yarra starts to tell a story of the name of the river capturing the true essence of what that landscape once was. I know you ran tours for big groups. Even uh, before we started this conversation, you were staging a tour with a large group. Uh, I believe it was a corporate group because they were all uh, dressed up uh, in their corporate uniforms. Do you also cater for like individuals or even couples with uh, tailor-made experiences? Yeah, we do. Um, There's probably a range of aspects of how people do access our tours. So we do take group bookings, like I said before, with school groups or corporate groups, and they're typically anywhere between 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, basically general and standard business hours. And we take special groups from time to time and so we work quite a lot with you know AFL clubs come on tours when we get you know events in Melbourne um, we will from time to time get some of those sporting teams coming in the group you saw me with was actually Melbourne United the NBL team they were doing this tour as an education to lead up into um, the First Nations round in the NBL so we kind of match purpose from that point of view But in terms of individuals, we also have firstly our public tours that run 9 to 5. They start at 1 o'clock and they can be booked via our website online. We do get a lot of people as walk-ins as well, which is great. When we get the walk-ins, it means people are visiting the trust, not just doing our tours, but visiting the trust and engaging in our culture and the cultural centre that we are as well. Also within tourism, we do offer private tours. And sometimes we've had private tours through other groups that have come and brought their um, their guests into the Koori Heritage Trust, and then we've conducted our tour for them. Sometimes we get direct bookings as well, and whether that's couples, we've had families. Basically, from my point of view, it's just anyone that's interested and wants to engage and learn from that perspective, then we'll take that on board. Talking about the Koori Heritage Trust, it has to be said that uh, the premises are currently being uh, revamped uh, with uh, major refurbishments to make it uh, a bigger and uh, better space. But you also mentioned that uh, your tours uh, run during the day 9 to 5. But what happens, uh, as is often the case in Melbourne, when the weather is either too hot or too cold and wait for comfort? We do a little bit of a mixture. Obviously, when it's extreme heat, we try not to take our guests out along the river. When it's okay heat, obviously we encourage water bottles, appropriate sunwear, you know, wearing, you know, protection and all those kind of things. And the same in light rain. We offer umbrellas when it's just light rain and drizzle, which, as you said, we can quite often get in Melbourne to last for some time. But in the really heavy rain, one of the bonuses we have as being the cultural centre that we are We have a lot of amazing indoor spaces, and you talked about our renovations happening now. Um, Come the first week of December, we'll be launching that new space, and we'll actually have a whole brand new gallery that takes up one of the entire floors of the Arrow building. What we're going to offer is an opportunity, still with one of our guides, to spend a bit more time possibly indoors with the indoor component. There's the hands-on opportunity with the artifacts to learn about the artifacts, how they're made. It's really exciting for a lot of our guests because they get the touch and feel. We don't like our culture to be completely behind glass. 
in a museum style. We'd like our people and our guests to engage with that culture. So the hands-on is always a good indoor experience. And as part of that, with the expansion of our galleries, which is going to be absolutely amazing, gives us a great opportunity for the um, for our guests to engage with the artworks and you know what our current exhibition might be. We have a lot of return guests that do almost stay indoors sometimes because our exhibitions change over around every three months. So for some people, it can be a completely different experience to the last time they visited as well. So we provide a lot of indoor opportunity. What can you tell us about Fed Square, where all this takes place or starts? Uh, it's best known for being home to ACMI, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and of course the Kuri Heritage Trust. But uh, what can you tell us about the place from an Indigenous uh, tourism destination perspective? It's a, it's a really interesting space because it's actually come to be a major meeting place in Melbourne. And, you know, as you know, we both work there and we go in there quite a lot. There's always people. There's always something happening. I know when I first started at the Curry Heritage Trust, I'd only gone to Federation Square when there was an activity on. And I thought that's what Federation Square did. But since I've arrived, I've suddenly realised it's almost every day that there's actually something on. You know, if you like, your average Melbourneian will hang there for lunch or whatever it might be. But if you look at ACME, NGV, the Koori Heritage Trust, it actually has become a real sort of almost visitor hub and an arts hub to a certain extent from that point of view that does attract interstate and international guests as well. And I think it's actually the, it's a, it's a free space and it's a free activity space. So there's always a way of engaging with something. And I think that's part of the amazing side of Federation Square in that way. And finally, any message or closing words for our listeners? I, I just encourage anyone from any background to visit and it's an opportunity to you know walk in and engage with the unique cultures of Aboriginal Victoria what I like about what we do at the Koori Heritage Trust is that we provide a safe space for anyone to engage in that culture and we provide a safe space for our own mobs and our own communities around Victoria especially those peoples that have you know ancestral works within the Koori Heritage Trust, but it's a safe space for anyone of any background. And so I encourage it from the point of view of just take the opportunity to learn about Aboriginal culture and the unique cultures of Victoria. Rob Hyatt, thank you very much for joining us on NITV Radio to talk to us about uh, the Koori Heritage Trust's uh, Indigenous cultural experiences. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Oh, good. Thank you. And that was uh, Rob Hyatt, Manager, Cultural Experiences at the Cory Heritage Trust. Now, if you want to listen to this conversation again, it's published on our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Time for another break. And when we come back, discussions in the upcoming UN Climate Change Conference. NITV radio, share our stories on Facebook. Welcome back. Now, as world leaders head to the United Nations Climate Change Conference, climate targets will be put under the microscope. But some scientists say greater attention should be placed on the role of animals in controlling the carbon cycle, suggesting the introduction of even a targeted group of species to some ecosystems could be enough to keep global temperatures below the 1.5 degrees Celsius tipping point. 
it's a conservation process called rewilding, which involves repatriating wildlife to damaged ecosystems and allowing nature to bounce back. Jennifer Skira reports. Boarding a light plane from the Tasmanian mainland is an unusual commute to work for Palawa man Andre Scalthorpe. He's part of an ecosystem restoration project on a remote 8,000 hectare island in the Bass Strait. This is Long Talana, and it's part of the, the, the country of our ancestors. 200 years ago, when people started to, white people started to come to these islands, they really took a lot away from these places. So there was a lot of exploitation of the whales, the seals, they set up farming on the islands. And the islands are small, and the, the, those small island ecosystems are also quite fragile. The island was returned to Aboriginal ownership in 2005 and is managed by the Pakana Rangers. But the team inherited a severely degraded landscape, ravaged by weeds and bushfires. Together with the World Wildlife Fund, the rangers are working to restore this ecosystem to its former glory, conducting frequent cool burns, an Aboriginal land management practice that encourages greater biodiversity. By putting fire gently through these landscapes in patches, burning these grasses... Um, that's allowing those grasses to flourish and stopping that overstory of she-oak and tea tree scrub from fully inundating these areas. As the environment starts to flourish, the rangers want to repatriate lost species, starting with the wombat. Animals are part of the way in which life is balanced out. The activities of wombats with their digging and their burrowing, you know, that helps to turn over soil. It creates microhabitats for plants to grow and germinate. And it also creates um, refuges, so in wildfires, other small animals can take refuge in those burrows. But before lost wildlife can be reintroduced to the island, one of the challenges facing the rangers is the need to eradicate feral cats. We believe that once we do that, then that sets up this place, uh, you know, as a wonderful benchmark for how landscapes can be restored. The restoration of land and sea habitats invites natural processes to rebound and enhances the biosphere's carbon cycle. For this reason, the team are also monitoring the seagrass beds around the island. Fiona Ma is a senior women's sea country ranger with the Pakana Rangers. They are huge carbon soaks, so they hold more carbon than what a rainforest would hold. A healthy ecosystem for me is healthy people. First Nations knowledge is leading this project, showing how to care for the land with cultural values at the forefront. This is Pakana Ranger Matt Wheatley. We're custodians of this land and it's really important for us to keep the ecology of this place running at a smooth level so we can try and get the country back to the way it was. In comparison to the rest of the world, Australia has one of the worst animal extinction records, but some say Tasmania could hold the key to restoring ecosystems. Rob Brewster is the rewilding program manager with the World Wildlife Fund Australia. Tasmania has only lost one mammal species, the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, and that was due to hunting. We've lost about 35 mammal species up on the mainland. We know that foxes play a huge role in mammal declines and extinction, so... Keeping foxes out of Tasmania is really key to the future of that island maintaining its biodiversity integrity. Around the world, there have been various successful efforts to rewild ecosystems. In the UK, the reintroduction of beavers has decreased the effects of floods in certain waterways due to their dam building capability. 
In Africa, the restoration of blue wildebeest populations in the Serengeti has helped the ecosystem move from being a carbon source to a carbon sink. Australia has various initiatives of its own, including reintroducing the platypus to the Royal National Park near Sydney. The Tasmanian Land Conservancy has various programs aiming to bolster eastern quoll populations in Tasmania, while other initiatives are underway to try to reintroduce them to the mainland where they have been extinct since the 1960s. David Hamilton is a conservation ecologist with the Tasmanian Land Conservancy. Eastern quolls are, are super important to, to the ecosystem that they're in. They're these, these things that we call mesopredators, which are predators kind of below that top level of predator, like your Tasmanian devil or your dingo, that are one step down the system that are predating some of those smaller species in the, in the landscape, and that means they're regulating things all the way down the system. A breeding program is underway to help eastern quolls repopulate their ecosystem niche. Dr Hamilton says healthy ecosystems can help to mitigate the effects of climate change. Healthy ecosystems are more resilient in some ways to change as well. So the more thriving populations they have going all the way through them, the more um, buffered they can be against some of the greater impacts that we're we're having on some of these populations. Jennifer Scherer, SBS News. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. And that was a Shade Away by Electric Fields. And uh, this song brings us to the end of uh, today's program. Your program will be back on uh, Wednesday and Friday this week with more stories and news from uh, right across the country. I'm Petran Tungandame, thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu. Yeah,